Hi, Karen. It's amazing to see you. I'm so excited for today's pod. Uh, Katie, always wonderful to see your beautiful face. I just described you again to someone as luminous. Oh, you're the nicest you person are. ever. It is true. And I mean, today's episode, another luminous person in our lives. Very much. Spend time with. So it's a great day. Dr. Tanya Israel, all of you, we know that you're super fans just like us, maybe not as big of super fans as we are because it's a competition. It's not, but we're, it was amazing to talk to Tanya. It really was. And I feel like I feel so lucky. She always brings such a fresh perspective. She always brings so much energy and life and passion. And it's just who she is. Like, it's just it's just wonderful to talk to her. It like gives me so much energy after these calls. I honestly feel like more energized than beforehand. Absolutely. I absolutely feel more energized and smarter. Oh, yeah. And I also appreciate, I feel like I'm thinking this through, like, so Tanya has joined us six times and brings something completely different and completely nuanced and is an expert in so many different things. Yes. I feel like we have gotten to know all of these different sides of more sides of Tanya in six episodes than maybe you and I, we just talk about rage and sleep all the time. I mean, you're so right. <laughs> it's like, it's so true. <laughs> I mean, we talk about insomnia and, you know, all of the things. Like, yes, you're so right. It's like <laughs> we have very laser focused conversations with her where yes. it's like, I definitely know more about Tanya than I know about some of my friends for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, right. Because she's so articulate about so many different things that none of the rest of us are thinking about. Yes. Yes. And really makes you think differently. Like, gosh, it reminds me of our last time we talked to her. Remember that? That was so intense and so amazing. Holy crap, the abortion conversation. I don't know what number that is, but listeners, if you've missed it, seriously, go back. It's just, it's, I think it's called abortion with Dr. Tanya Israel. It's, it's incredible, truly incredible. She basically like takes us through an experience through like a psychological experience. It was, it was, that was incredible. Anyway, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but this one is also fascinating. I'm very excited to, for everyone to hear this and please stay until the end because you have a special treat. Like we talk about bisexuality <laughs> and a lot of things that are fascinating and important and some of them being very sobering and we end on a very different note. Yes. Yes, it is an emotional journey and it is worth it to stick with us till the end. I completely agree. Yeah, it's amazing. So I hope everyone enjoys yet again, Dr. Tani Israel, our third co-host. Dr. Tanya Israel, welcome back for your sixth visit on, of course, I'm not okay. Thank you so much for being here. It's wonderful to see you. I am thrilled to be back. Always just such a delight. Oh my God. You really are our unofficial official third co-host. Like this is, it's legit. I feel like six, six episodes. Wait, okay. What's the math on this? This is episode what? 103. 103. Yep. And you've been on six of them. What's the math? On that? <laughs> That's a large percentage. 7%? 8%? I was told there would be no math. <laughs> Ooh, ouch. Surprise. Surprise. 
It is so wonderful to be all together. It feels so natural and amazing. And, you know, it's it's crazy, Tanya, because I feel like even though we see you from time to time, it always feels like it's been a long time. And it just it's like a lot of things have changed and happened. And yeah, it's just and also you have a new job, right? Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I have a little job on top of the job that I have. So I'm I'm now Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the School of Education at UCSB. Oh, congratulations. That's wonderful. How are you liking it? Are you liking the job on top of the job or are you, how are you doing? You know, it it's gives me some interesting opportunities to keep learning and expanding and so I think I think that's great. You know, I always I always like I, I wasn't really interested in like a new job. <laughs> but <laughs> then I got interested in it, you know, when it was when when I got nominated for, I was like, oh, let me think about it some and let me start Googling and now let me start making PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> and let me, you know, I yes. just yeah, I start to get excited about the possibilities of doing things and being creative around it. Ooh, thank you for saying that. Cause I feel like I'm, I'm in a little bit of a, I mean, this will be the second half of our conversation in a little bit of a, just like, really, you want, you want something else now <laughs> on some, really, you want, you want me to do something else. So it's good to hear you say like being creative and getting excited about it. And like, you gotta, you kind of gotta, to get the momentum going, you kind of gotta move, you gotta get yourself moving. So thank you for that. Yes. Thank you very much for that. And I'd love to just dive right in, Tanya. It's been so exciting. So for all of our listeners who I hope all of you follow Dr. Tanya Israel on social media, and if you don't, you should, and we will link all of her socials in the so- in the show notes. But I think, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was riveted by all of your Instagram posts from the White House. And I was like, what is actually happening right now? This is amazing. Tani's at the White House. Not a shocker whatsoever. But also, like, I would just love to hear what you've been up to lately. It sounds really exciting. Well, yes. There was a week when I did a lot um, around bisexuality because it was Bisexual Visibility Week or Celebrate Bisexuality Week or Bisexual Awareness Week. Being bisexual, we have to have options, right? So we can call it lots of different things. Nice. Well put. <laughs> yes. Um, so I was in DC at the beginning of that week. And on the, so this is what happened that week. On that Monday, I um, was part of a group that brought together people who were um, advocates for bisexuality or just bisexual people who were in the DC area. And we got to have this lovely time of hearing about people's experiences, talking about, you know, what what people would like to see happen. And that was really useful. And I said, you know, I really want people's voices in my ears because the next day I was part of a delegation of bisexual advocates, activists, researchers who um who had an opportunity to do a briefing for folks from the Biden administration about bisexual health policy. And I, okay, so now I'm going to have to do a little bit of why would we need to do that? And so let me just say a few things about why it's important to focus on bisexual health policy. First of all, 
there are a lot of bisexual people. Bisexual people are the majority of the LGBTQ community. So there are more bisexuals than lesbians and gay men put together. And transgender people are more likely to be bisexual than they are to be monosexual. So we're, we're most of the LGBTQ community. So that's the first thing, and a lot of people don't know that. The second thing is we are a growing community. So if you look at generational statistics, like from the Gallup poll, there's more bisexuals every generation. And this is fascinating. Gen Z is 15% bisexual. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, Gen Z, that's amazing. Yeah, right? I know, yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So more and more bisexual people. The other thing to know is that uh, we have some significant uh, health and mental health disparities. So there are ways that bisexual people are at risk for depression, anxiety, suicidality, also health um, things like ulcers and poor general health. And in, in many of those cases, more so than all other sexual orientations. Um, and you might wonder, well, why would that be like, isn't it cool to be bisexual and aren't bisexuals, you know, like, like, um, isn't it easier to be bisexual than to be lesbian or gay? Well, it turns out that bisexual people not only get all the negative stuff about being not heterosexual, but also get all the negative stuff about being not monosexual, because people really struggle with this idea that like, you don't fit into this box of just being attracted to one gender or the other, and you can be attracted to more than one gender, that's just kind of mind-blowing for a lot of people. So, so that's a problem. Um, and, and also bisexual people don't always find community in uh, LGBT community because of some of that negativity, both from heterosexual people and then from LGBT people also. So there's lots of things that sort of put um, bisexual people at risk. We've got the highest rates of um, intimate partner violence as well. There's there's all kinds of things. I know. I, <laughs> boy, the, the looks on your faces, it's like, oh no, this is horrible. It and, is horrible, but I'm yeah. so glad you're talking about it. This is important. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. Legit, this is bad stuff. The good news is there's stuff that can be done about it, but it needs to be done. So there are things that we can do on a federal level, just in terms of the kind of data that we're collecting in all kinds of federal data collection methods. We need to collect data about bisexual people uh, specifically, not just about LGB people or LGBT people together, because when you uh, separate out bisexual people, we call it disaggregating. So when you disaggregate um, the data and you look at just bisexual people, you can see that, wow, some of the things that are driving health disparities for LGB people are actually um, really mostly about bisexual people being at risk. I mean, we obviously need to keep supporting lesbian and gay people. Obviously, trans people are at risk in a lot of ways. And bisexual people tend to be fairly invisible in all of this. And so we don't have a lot of representation in terms of advocacy efforts. A lot of uh, LGBT community centers aren't providing any bisexual specific services. And so, so we don't have a lot of people um, speaking up for us. And we don't have anybody sort of in paid positions to be able to do this. So we're, we, we're kind of 
you know, scrappy and, and trying to, you know, make our way and do the things we can. So it took some efforts from some really dedicated people to set up this meeting. I was not one of them. I, I got invited into this meeting, but I really appreciate there are some people who are working hard for a long time to get this to happen. Because back during the Obama administration, some very dedicated people had made things happen. And we had, um, uh, the first White House bisexual community policy briefing where a hundred people came together to really talk about bisexual policy and figure out where we should go with things. And then we had another gathering the following year. And then there was an administration where we didn't get invited back to the White House. Um, and then, you know, it's taken a while for us to, to get anybody's ear in the administration. And so, um, we are we're back at it again, and we're we're doing we're doing the work, putting all of this information out there because most people don't know. Like all the things I said, most people have no idea, and so even the people who are making policy or are providing services just don't know any of these things. So it's important just that people know that basic information and know what can be done around it. So I'm also going to say, because most of the people listening to your podcast may not be policymakers, although I'm so sure that Kamala's listening, you know, like, so. This is Kamala and Michelle, it. this is number one yeah. on their Apple oh, yeah. iTunes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no yeah, yeah, question. yeah obviously. No question. No yes. question. So Kamala, here's what, no. Um, so there's things that the policymakers need to know, but here's what everybody needs to know. There are things that we call anti-bisexual experiences. So bisexual people experience a lot of negative stuff in their lives, hearing like negative comments about bisexual people in the workplace. And just, you know, if they tell someone they're bisexual, people, you know, not believing us in a lot of ways. And so we always get challenged, like, well, are you really bisexual? You know, like, and and there's, there's a kind of um, illegitimacy of bisexuality that we get confronted with all the time. And so one of the things is, well, people can stop doing that, you know, like, like not exposing us to all this negativity. But here's the other thing. When there are positive experiences around bisexuality, it actually supports our mental health. So if people do things, and honestly, even just not saying negative stuff is viewed as a positive experience just because it's in contrast to so much of what we deal with, but just being supportive, educating yourself, um, not, you know, questioning whether or not somebody's actually bisexual, like all of those things, sharing information on social media, like there was a whole week there that would have been great to do that, but also Bisexual Health Awareness Month is coming up in March. So that's a great time to just share information and resources uh, with folks and, and everybody can do that. Whew, that's my little PSA. <sighs> <laughs> deep breath with you. Thank you for all of that. And, you know, as we'll get into later, it is hard to be a spokesperson for your people. So I really appreciate you being willing to educate us about all of those different things. And, you know, the generational piece is so interesting to me. And I don't know if you have an insight into why that, why is Gen Z, why are younger people more identifying more as bisexual? Do you have any theories around that? So I think that some of this has to do with sort of um, just generationally greater acceptance of non-heterosexual orientations, like generally over the generations, like we've, we've seen change in that. There's also some things where, 
Um, loosening up our rigid notions of gender, I think, helps a lot because, I mean, frankly, when people uh, started doing more open um, identification as bisexual, which I'm going to say, like, in the 80s and 90s that, you know, it's it's as recent as that, that there was sort of more of this going on and, and, and bubbling up. It's super radical to say that you could be attracted to more than one gender, because if we think about gender as so binary, then the idea that you could be attracted to more than one, and I mean, honestly, the way we were talking about it at the time was attraction to men and women, because we were mostly talking about gender in binary ways. And now more, you know, people who are bisexual more typically think about it as being attracted to more than one gender. It doesn't necessarily need to be in a binary way. But just the idea that you could be attracted to more than one because they were seen as so radically different from each other. So bisexuality in some ways by its very existence sort of says, look, gender is not so uh, binary necessarily, like, like that you can be attracted to more than one. But also people uh, viewing and embodying gender as being less binary, I think makes that idea of bisexuality and the experience of bisexuality more comfortable for folks. That would be my guess. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for explaining that. That makes so much sense. Like I think about my sister who is 10 years younger than I am. She was born in 1990 and her experience uh, even talking about this within her peers is very different than the experience that I have in talking about it with my peers. And it's very different from the experience that I have in talking about it with my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation. And yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think that you know, without trying to make you an expert at all or anything like that, Tanya, I guess I'm wondering, like, for people who are listening, who are like, shoot, I think I've been one of those people who's been negative, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe inadvertently or overtly negative. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying in, earlier when you said educate yourself. Don't mm-hmm. do that. Like, are there any other guardrails or filters that people should have like I think it's just it seems like in terms of um you know educating people on like what not to do like just don't be a dick like that's like it's like that's <laughs> right like it's just I mean there's just like be kind but like I think that there's this feeling that I've experienced or this this feedback that I've experienced from people who are in older generations to mine and even frankly in my peer group that is this confusion and mm-hmm. there's I think that confusion can be um can be very negative I would imagine for people who are who do identify as as bisexual and I don't think pushing that confusion on other people makes sense because that's also in the binary I, I don't know if that does that make sense or I, I wouldn't want to be negative in any way so you mean the confusion of people who aren't bisexuals? No. Of... So for people who are heterosexual, identify as heterosexual, and then they ask the people who are bisexual or tell them that they're confused. Oh, I, yeah. I'm one, and that is so offensive, I would imagine. And I would just love to educate those people who are listening to like, don't do that. Like that's like, or don't, right. you know, I, do you know what I'm saying? I, I don't know yeah. if that's making sense. It, it does make sense. And 
you know, some people say, oh, like, okay, this is this is some of the specific stuff that happens um, from lesbian and gay people, because some lesbian and gay people did identify as bisexual at some point, either they felt like that was easier when they were coming out, or there was just a point where they felt like that best represented their experience. And then they, you know, later identified as lesbian or gay. And so people were like, oh, well, it's just it's a transition point along the way, or they're just not comfortable being fully out yet as lesbian or gay. Like there's a lot of things. And that's actually based on some, you know, their own experience sometimes. But the interesting thing is that sometimes people identify as lesbian or gay, and then later on end up identifying as bisexual. So that can happen as well. So people think from their own experience and they think, wow, if I, were calling myself that or feeling those things or this, then, then it would be confusing to me, then I would feel confused. And so then they put that onto other folks. And they, and also this idea that you have to choose, you know, that, 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 like, you have to choose who you're attracted to. And I'm like, okay, well, let's say you're only attracted to one gender. But, um, but would we be like, you cannot be attracted to blondes and brunettes, you know, it's like, like, that would be a weird thing to say. And it's like, well, what about redheads? You know, there's, there's all kinds of latitude that we allow people in terms of their attractions until it comes to gender. And then it becomes like, well, why don't you choose one or the other? Or people think, oh, if you're bisexual, you can't be monogamous because you're if you're in a relationship with a person of one gender, then you're going to need to also have somebody of another gender. And it's like, well, again, you can be heterosexual or lesbian or gay and be attracted to you know, let's say men or women doesn't mean that you must be with all the men or all the women, you know, <laughs> that that monogamy and polyamory is a different thing from sexual orientation. So there's a lot of myths that we are trying to overcome and and that get inflicted on us all the time. So, yes, not inflicting those myths is a really, really great idea. That was very helpful. Thank you. And, you know, what's embarrassingly mind-blowing about this conversation to me, Tanya, is this realization that like, there are probably so many bisexual people in my life who I have no idea are bisexual. Mm. And I recently went to the NLGJA, the Association of LGBTQ plus journalists convention. And we were putting together a plenary about sexuality and we were having trouble finding people to be on it. The person that organized the panel couldn't come. And so we were looking for people. And so somebody did this census, looked at how people identified in NLGJA. And it was it was exactly like you're saying, it was more than 50% of the membership, right? Of NLGJA identifies as bisexual. And I just wonder how many folks just use the shorthand of one or the other because they don't want to have the conversation. They don't want to get into it. And it was just so interesting to me to think about like, how many people do I know have like just I don't yeah just her closet is being bisexual and I would have no idea oh my god that's such a great example and I loved that you know you you looked and you're like wow we have the data like look at this so one of the things that's interesting is that of people who are bisexual who are partnered 84% of them are in mixed gender relationships. So primarily male, female relationships. And so then people are like, oh, look at all those bisexual people who are trying to, you know, maintain heterosexual privilege or whatever. But actually just statistically, if you're like, well, 
how many people are seeking same gender versus mixed gender relationships? You get a lot more people out there in the world who are seeking mixed gender relationships. So statistically, it actually makes sense that 84%, you know, would, would be in uh, mixed gender relationships, but especially those folks aren't even identified as being queer so much of the time, you know? And so, but then when you are queer identified, uh, let's say you're in a same gender relationship, there's this thing where it feels like um, if people are like, oh, it's great to be here with all the lesbians, like it feels really not in solidarity to say, actually, I'm bisexual, like, because, you know, here's a marginalized community of lesbians. And you're like, I don't want to say, no, no, I'm not part of you. Like, that seems kind of rude. And I know so many people who are bisexual, and especially, I think, in same gender relationships, and just stopped identifying as bisexual, because one, everyone sort of assumed that they were, um, that they were lesbian or gay. And people sort of made those references. And you don't want to separate yourself out from people who are marginalized in that way. So yeah, absolutely. I think people just stop making a point of it. Um, unless, unless you're me. Uh, <laughs> and I always make a point of it. But I think it's so beautiful that you make a point of it, Tanya. And what you're saying, I think, plays into what you were saying in the very beginning of this conversation, that there's like this, this, where do you fit, you know, and like, that there's like this negativity, they can, they can be so overt, even in those communities, like, it seems like there's, oh, my gosh, like, it's not, I mean, the, this is even more reinforcement of what you were talking about when you were talking to the Biden administration, needing resources for mental health and physical health. And like, yeah, this is just day to day. Yeah. But what I've realized is I've only gotten to Tuesday of that week in my story. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Please. Wait, that was just Tuesday? Oh, my God. Tuesday. Oh, my God. So okay. I'm just going to finish it up real quick. So then on Wednesday, I flew from D.C. back home to Santa Barbara, and I went to see my hairstylist. And I, ha I have an undercut. And so I, I had her color the undercut the colors of the bisexual flag. So it's pink, blue, and purple. And so I would show it to you, except my cat's on my lap and she's going to be so upset if I move her. So oh, it's okay. Um, we'll take a screenshot from you, one of your Instagram you, posts. Yeah. Yeah. You can see on Instagram. And so that's one of the things about being visible. Like there are ways that we can be visible. So then on Thursday, I started teaching my class that I teach on bisexuality. So I've got this online course. And so I've got 240 undergraduate students who are taking this class about bisexuality. So that was super exciting. And then on Friday, I have a student who's doing his dissertation on mental health of bisexual people in China. And so his dissertation proposal was on Friday. And then I organized a half happy hour because we have a bisexual discussion group in Santa Barbara called Biolog. And I was like, we have to do something for Celebrate Bisexuality Day. So we had a happy hour and that was just lovely and great. So anyway, that was my wife. That was that week. So there was a lot. Um, yeah. So bisexual advocates are very busy during that week in particular, but it was great and exciting. And I felt like we were able to, I was, I felt like I was able to do things in a number of different venues, which was great. So thanks for letting me sort of do yet another thing to capitalize on all that right here. Anytime, all the time. Thank you for being here to talk about it. It's really exciting. And I think the other thing I really love about it is that it's not in June. You get your own time to have these conversations, to have your 
identity highlighted where you're not thrown in the alphabet soup with everybody else. I really appreciate that. Mm. And do you feel like that's in, has been important? I would imagine that has been an important part of it. Well, it's mostly important because we are also largely invisible during June. Yeah. And so when you see, you know, the pride marches, even though Pride was started by a bisexual woman, Brenda Howard. She was like, after, you know, after Stonewall, she was like, we need to do something to mark this. And she's bisexual. And so the fact that we get lost, like if you look at the flags that people put out there or all of the, you know, stuff you can buy at all the stores and blah, 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 you know, um, you see the rainbow flag, which is great. I'm glad we see the rainbow flag. We're now seeing more of the trans flag, which I think is fantastic that that's more visible. We do not see a lot of the bi flag. And at at queer bars, like if they have a flag out or, uh, you know, we're just, and and now some people are starting to say like, like um, public figures when they talk of, they're trying to be inclusive. So as they say, uh, lesbian, gay, and transgender, because they're trying to be inclusive of transgender, and they're just dropping the bisexual, like it's happening all the time. So it's, um, yeah, anyway, so yes, it's good that we have our own week, because we get lost in the shuffle in all the other times. Wow, thank you for explaining that. The fact that there aren't the flags, like it's like, I do see trans flags, I do see the rainbow flag, but you're right. I don't see bi flags. I don't. And I would love to transition this, Tanya, into this conversation that you had talked to Karen and I a little bit about before we hit record, which is this idea of being wanting or like an expert versus not an expert and people treating you like an expert. And I would love to hear what you have to say about that, because I mean, especially as someone who just came back from talking and briefing the Biden administration, I would imagine that people are treating you in a certain way around this topic. What is that like for you? And what does that mean to you? Well, I'm going to say I legit am an expert on this at this point. But the funny, <laughs> <laughs> so it's fine to treat me like an expert. Um, and, you know, what was funny was when I did my TEDx talk on bisexuality, which was in 2015, I I was, I just did that because I was, and I had been doing research on LGBT stuff and a little bit of bi-specific stuff, but then I do this TEDx talk and suddenly I'm, it's like Tanya Israel, international expert on bisexuality. And I was like, oh my God, okay, I got a, my game here. And so it also kind of gave me permission to do more bi-specific research, to start a bisexual discussion group in my community, like all kinds of things. Um, so I think that it has been great in a lot of ways. And it can also get kind of exhausting. So, uh, you know, lots of people have questions about bisexuality or, you know, about, well, and this is the thing you asked me about my new job. So I've been doing research on LGBTQ psychology for 25 years. And then I started doing some more specific bisexual stuff, especially starting in 2015. And then after the 2016 election, I started this whole new thing of doing stuff about bridging political divides. And so I'm like, there's this whole other area where I've now gained expertise. And then I became associate dean for DEI. And I was like, oh my gosh, now I have to learn the entire field of DEI. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I'm feel and, and okay. I told you about what happened uh, like two weeks ago, this past week, 
I was doing all the stuff on bridging political divides where I I met with a an anti-racist learning circle who was doing a reading of my book and talking about how that applied to what they were doing. And then I gave a talk at a um, UCLA law um, school has a summit for women alumni and students. And they invited me to come and talk about bridging political divides. And then on Sunday, I gave a sermon at a church in Georgia. I mean, virtually. So oh across my the gosh. About bridging political divides. And I'm like, and, and yes, so I did all of those things. And so I'm feeling a little this week, like, okay, can I not be the expert in anything? <laughs> can I just like learn things or talk about like my cat? <laughs> yep. So I anyway. Mean, yeah. That's kind of where I am, but I'm curious about how this affects you all. And, you know, I know, Karen, you were saying like, you know, being a professional lesbian, that can be a lot of work. So, yeah. And I mean, I don't, I don't have that as much anymore, though I kind of do because I, I feel like that is part of that identity and my experience being a lesbian, a reporter in the lesbian community and the LGBTQ community has come into my editing work now. And I was joking about it. So I, 22 years ago now, worked for the Windy City Times. We called it the Windy City Times. And I was a reporter and it's the LGBTQ newspaper in Chicago. And so I was recently out as lesbian and covering the community. So yeah, I called myself a professional lesbian. And it is this situation where like the blurring, they're like, there is no line between who you are as a human being and who you are professionally, because you have to talk about your identity all of the time. And I feel like people who don't have marginalized, who aren't from marginalized communities or aren't from, you know, necessarily oppressed communities don't have that experience of like, okay, who you actually are as a human being is your job. And it is something that you were called upon to talk about all of the time. And you never just get to turn it off. So I feel you about being exhausted about it. And and I, the last thing I'll say is that I feel like I also got to a point where it's like, I am not explaining another thing to another person. Like, I'm just, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I can't, no, we're not. Just go Google it. I can't. Yes, I totally feel you there. It's, you know, people find my work very interesting and want to talk to me, like my friends and family want to talk to me about my work, which is so lovely and supportive of them. And I'm like, I just... I was joking before we started recording. I was like, I just want to talk about how to cut up a watermelon. Like that's all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Something simple. It makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And Karen, what you're saying in terms of like who you are and the lines between like what you do and who you are. And it's like, you can never turn off. Like it's, that's what it seems like. And it's like what you're talking about, the, Tanya, it sounds like it's so similar for you. And you know, it's just so interesting to like, how do you create that space? Like, do you have people in your life, Tanya, that like you can talk about chopping watermelons with that? It's like, you know, other than the two of us, which you can always talk about anything with. But like, is that like, do you ever have, you know, like, I mean, like groups where you are like, we're just talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer right now. Like, that's that's it. That's all that's on the table. Or like, is there any way is I guess I'm wondering do you have boundaries around it or is there a way to establish boundaries that you found? Oh, that's such a good question. Probably something I need to work on. And 
Yeah, I would say I well, first, yes, I definitely have people who I talk to about things other than this and and delightfully so. And at the same time, you know, I appreciate that people want to know, like, like everybody knows I have this new this new position and stuff. So people are asking me, so what I've had to do is kind of here's the thing I say about it, you know? And so it's like, okay, I can say this thing and then we can move on. And I can be like, so how are you? Um, and and talk with people about recipes. All I during the pandemic, like all I wanted to do was talk about what people were eating. Like <laughs> I realized like that that just became the thing that I was like this is not stressful. I'm curious about this. I'd like to talk about this. I don't have to talk about, you know, political polarization. Yeah. Let's talk about watermelon. Oh man. All day long. Well, and I think it's this also, it is a universal experience. We're all eating something. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just keep coming back to this idea of like the things that make us human not the letters after our name, not the things that we do for money, not the things that we do, but like literally like just what makes you a human being. And yes, the food is definitely part of it. I feel like I have to explain how I cut up watermelon now because okay, I've, yes, I've no, referenced it. Yes, this is really, this is, this is the riveting content I'm here for. This so I really, okay, I'm, right? I'm like really excited about okay. it. Okay, so um, I feel like what a lot of people do is they slice up a watermelon. So it's these slices that have the rind on it, you know, and you're supposed to eat it in, from that somehow. So that just doesn't work for me. I want, I want my watermelon in cubes without the, without the rind on it. So I can just sit down and eat a whole bunch of it with a fork. Um, and so I cut the ends of the watermelon off and then I sort of stand it up on one of the flat ends and I, and I cut off all of the rind so then it's just like a bald you know the edible part of the watermelon <laughs> bald we're talking about bald watermelons here hashtag bald watermelon watermelon <laughs> hairless watermelons and then i do slices and then i cube it from there it's so easy and and i did share this technique with somebody in my life recently and it has apparently transformed their relationship with watermelon. So I if if I if I were better at I'm trying to figure out TikTok. I joined TikTok and I have two videos up at this point. I don't know how to really make a TikTok, but I'm gonna try to figure it out so I can show how to cut up a watermelon because I, I wanna help change everybody's lives in this very way. I mean, you are changing so many lives, just telling it to our audience. Like this is, I mean, I, are there still watermelons available at the grocery store right now? I mean, I feel like it's a summer fruit, but maybe, maybe in some places it's the, the season is extended. This is a fantastic question because the way I know that seasons have changed, because I live in California, so it's really hard to know from the weather. Yeah. But when I go to Trader Joe's and there's a big box full of watermelons out front, I know it's summer. Yes. And when those watermelons turn into gourds, I know it's fall. It's true. So now it's gourds that are out at the Trader Joe's. But I went to a non-Trader Joe's supermarket, which is really unusual for me. I only do it if I have to. And I did it because I was like, maybe they have watermelons. <laughs> Did they? And they did. And oh. I and I and I and it was from California. So I was like, I don't necessarily want to get watermelon that they picked a month ago somewhere too far away. So I don't think I'll be eating watermelon, you know, throughout the winter, for example. But yes, you can still get watermelon in supermarkets, it turns out. 
that is amazing. Just don't you go to TJ's. How, you see how energized I've gotten, Tanya? <laughs> you really, you really have. So You've excited. perked right up, Tanya. Like <laughs> you were great before, but like this is a different oh level. You have entered flow. Like you are in a flow state yeah. about watermelon. So, so now I need to know like kitchen hacks that you all have, like things you'd like to share. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> I know. Uh, crickets. Oh. Hmm. Well, I just I just purchased an air fryer and Ooh. I know that everyone and their sister loves their air fryers. And I've heard that like the most amazing appliance I have yet to I've I've cooked one thing, which is sweet potatoes in them. And they went pretty well. But I am not an amazing person to ask about cooking. I am not, unfortunately, a very good cook. Karen, are you are you are you into cooking? I actually don't know this about you. Uh, I know. Right. <laughs> I I have um fits and starts with it. Like because my diet is so strange and restrictive and I'm I go on and off of being on AIP, which is the autoimmune protocol or autoimmune paleo. Like it's so restrictive that like I find myself cooking a lot, but it's not very interesting, unfortunately. I will say I had a kitchen mishap mishap today. This was not a hack. This was just a mishap. So uh my partner is in town. We're long distance, just Indiana, Chicago, but uh, and we had spent the weekend away and had had a fire pit so we were like very into like we need to set everything on fire and <laughs> so decided to pull out my tiny charcoal grill this is where the story goes awry and like we bought some stuff at whole foods and we're gonna barbecue it when i tell you it took an hour and a half to get the fire going oh yeah no, no. Oh, oh yeah no. no an hour not only was it an hour and a half but this was also a seasonal experience tanya in that I decided like, we just need lighter fluid in this situation. Like we were trying to like be eco-friendly. I don't know what my hangup was about the lighter fluid, but eventually I gave in. Well, no, it's October in Chicago. There ain't no lighter fluid anywhere. Anybody selling lighter fluid right now? So it was like, I it took me three stores and I was like in the back corner of Target with the like three bags of charcoal and the two lighter. Yeah, it was sad. It was, I mean- but what persistence on your part, right? Really. Oh, yeah, very so dedicated. Remarkable. I I appreciate that to be <laughs> yes. applauded. I, I also think it's really funny that I've been here talking about how to cut up a watermelon, and then I'm like, "Do you all have kitchen hacks?" And and Katie's like, "Well, I'm not really a great cook. I'm talking about cutting up a watermelon. I'm not talking about like gourmet." <laughs> okay, okay. You know what, Tanya? I appreciate that so much. I actually do have a kitchen okay, hack. Okay, okay. Because okay, I will. I'll. <laughs> I mean, this is embarrassing to say, but like, I love peaches. That's not the embarrassing part. I love them. And the peach season, I'm trying to extend it. It's not working very well here in Oregon. Like peaches don't grow naturally. And so like they have to travel up here. So it's been the most amazing peach season here at like the, like at our, our at Trader Joe's actually is where I shop as well. And so I have had a few misses with peaches lately where you cut it and you're like, it's just dry and it's gross. And it's like, this is just not going to work for me. And so I really try so hard to extend the life of my peaches because I love them so much. And so the other day I cut part of a peach, like just the side of it. And I had a few slices and they were not very good. And then I'm like, I'm just going to put this in the refrigerator. I can't believe I'm taking all this detail, but like I'm putting this in the refrigerator and I'm just going to let it like cool for a second. Cool peaches. I don't know. Anyway. And so it sat there and this, the part where it had been cut looked disgusting. I mean, it didn't look rotten, but it looked like really gross. It had been cut a day before. 
So today I go to make a salad and I cut into the peach and the part that was not exposed was perfect. <laughs> it was perfect. It was like the most amazing slices of peach ever. And I was like, I feel like I got bonus peaches right there. And so anyway, pro tip, if your peach is not amazing, put it in the fridge, number one. And if it's still not amazing when you cut into it, don't throw it away. Just put it back in the fridge and then cut it two days later. <laughs> that's my that's my tip. That's great. I love that. I love that. <laughs> fantastic oh yeah that is that's a new low for this <laughs> i hope i'm giving someone a good tip so no but, yeah. but here's the thing i realized like on this very meta level what happened was that i made you the expert i was like do you have like some something culinary that you can share and you were like oh no i'm the expert i can't be the expert and you know karen's like no i have this really restrictive you know diet and it's like yeah and but it it sort of puts you in this position where it's like, oh, no, now I really have to bring it, right? Yes, it's true. It's true. I dug deep for that peach story. And now I feel like an expert on peaches. And so, like, <laughs> it actually made me feel, but it is very, very meta. Oh, wow. Yeah. I will say my one, ex my only experience with this that I can think of right now so my mother is from Alabama and she makes like the best soul food in the entire world. And she makes really, really good mac and cheese. Like I grew up like every holiday having this like amazing mac and cheese. And I got her recipe and like over the years have made different versions, like not different versions of it. I've made it every time, but the results are not always awesome. Right? And I just remember signing up for a potluck with a bunch of lesbians taking it and saying that I was bringing my mama's mac and cheese and everybody went like insane for, I think literally just because I said it was my mother's mac and cheese and I was taking my dish home and the host took the rest of it out of the pan before giving it back to me. I was like, Oh, okay. Well I was going to take that home with me. But so that was like a moment of like, wow. Oh, I've done a thing. I have achieved some kind of Nirvana because I cooked my mother's mac and cheese really well. Okay, now I'm going to ask more questions about the mac and cheese if I can. Oh, it's delicious, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> Did you bake it in the oven? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you make like a cheese sauce. It's Colby and cheddar, and it's not condensed milk. It's a vet. The milk in a can that's not sweet. Uh -huh. You warm it up on the stove. You put in some cheese. You make like a cheese sauce, and then you mix it all together, and then you put it in the oven, and you make layers like a lasagna. Oh, my God, it's delicious. Oh. I know it's fantastic. And did I make it once in Instapot? Yes. Did it explode like lava and there was cheese sauce? Like just literally like a volcano of cheese. I've never touched the Instapot since then. I can't do it. Oh, oh my God. Can we do an episode on the Instant Pot? Because yeah. I have an Instant Pot. I have a whole relationship with my Instant Pot. Oh. We don't have enough time to have the cold conversation now. But there's a lot going it. on with me in the Instant Pot. Really? I'm also open to a, an entire podcast episode about cheese. Like, yes. <laughs> I mean, this is that might have to be a whole new podcast. <laughs> it could be. It could be a spinoff. Yes. Mm -hmm. Seriously. <laughs> a cheesy pod. That's it. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Tanya, this is so much fun. Seriously. I'm so glad we got to your watermelon story and we got to hear about the the mac and cheese and my peach and <laughs> all of it. <laughs> Winning. 
This is amazing. That was great. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. I have enjoyed it immensely, as I always do. Thanks. You two are so much fun and delightful to interact with. And thanks also for letting me, you know, share a lot of stuff that I do have expertise in, like bisexuality, as well as talk about how to cut a watermelon. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week, everybody.